be seated. I invite you to join me as we do each Lord's Day by taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, this was our passage last week as well, as we are continuing on in our series on the church. As we've been saying the past few weeks, we can think of this series as being a, a church one-on-one. We're coming back to the fundamentals. Who is the church? What is the church? We want to come back to this sort of two plus two equals four of the church. So we can not only better understand the fundamentals, but we can better understand them to help us glorify God and to enjoy Him, not only how we understand the church, but how we are the church as well. So last Sunday, we looked at the mark, the the mission, the bullseye for the church, the purpose that God has given for the church. And that purpose is for us to gather, and for, for the church to gather and perfect the saints. We're here for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. A very simple mission, but one we have to be reminded of that that is what we're aiming for. So we're going to look at this a little bit more this morning, coming back to our passage here that gives us an insight into the early church in Acts 2. Let me pray for us as we come now before God's word together. Lord Jesus, you call us to follow you, to repent of our sins, and to follow after you. And we follow after you through this word, which always points us to you. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it always points to you, Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, our Lord and Savior. Make yourself, we pray this morning, make yourself better known to us through your word. Make your paths for us more visible to us. And make your ways to us more lovely. So we can say along with Paul that for me to live is Christ. And as the greatest delight and the greatest joy we have in this life. God, each of us. In this way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Please stand with me now for the reading of God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, as he said, as we just said, is rather pretty simple. What does God want for us? He wants us to be a gathering place, a place where God's people are gathered and they are perfected. That we gather for the purpose of worship, that this is part of our mission right here. What we do every Lord's Day, every Sunday morning, we gather for the purpose of 
worship, so that we may be perfected through the worship, have this sanctifying effect. And as we know from our catechism, sanctification, where we die more and more to our sins and we learn to live more and more to Christ's righteousness, is a work of God's free grace. It's an ongoing process. That the best way for us to grow, for God to do His spiritual work in us, the best way for us to grow in faith and spirit is through this worship. This is foundational. This is the beginning. This is the starting line for us to grow as Christians. And so that's, that's our bullseye. It's the bullseye of the church. We're to be a gathering place for God's people to come and worship so they may grow in faith. A very simple bullseye a very simple mission for the church. But that should lead them to a question of how do we know that we're doing the job? How do we know if we're doing church well? How do we know if we're hitting the bullseye or if we're at least getting close to it? How do we know if we are fulfilling the mission that God has given to us? What are these Markers, these distinctions, these things that God has given to us to help us know that we are doing what we ought to do. Well, coming back to the theme of, of a bullseye, of a target, if you've ever learned to shoot, you pretty, I think most of us have shared the same experience. You have to learn something about the gun, but you have to learn the mechanics of shooting. You just don't grab a shotgun and, and, and go out and shoot. If you do that, it's a good way to... Maybe break your shoulder or break your nose, right? But you have to learn about the gun. You have to learn the mechanics. How, how do you stand? How do you aim? Even your breathing, it all goes into how you learn how to shoot. And then you go out, and you aim at a target, maybe at a bullseye, and then you take the shot. And what happens after you take one shot, two shots, three shots? You then go and look at the target. And you see, am I getting close to the bullseye? If I'm not, what do I need to correct? What am I doing right? And what do I need to do to correct it so I can get closer and closer to it? And you do all that so hopefully at some point you're routinely and consistently either hitting the bullseye or getting closer and closer to it. Same is true for church. We've been given a bullseye, so what markers has God given to us? What do we look for to see how we're getting close to the target he's given to us? But we turn back to our Acts passage because we find the answers there. And there are three things we look for. Simplicity, seriousness, and sincerity. What are the markers that we know we're, we're hitting close to the bullseye? There's simplicity, there's sincerity, and there's seriousness. So the first marker we see is Simplicity. When we look at the early church, we see a simplicity of faith that reflects a simplicity of the faith. So a simplicity, I'm sorry, it had a simplicity of worship. Let me say that correctly. We look at the early church and we see it had a simplicity of worship that reflected the simplicity of the Christian faith. Again, look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That was their worship service. It was a very simple worship, wasn't it? The first thing, the main thing that worship was built around was the preaching and teaching. And then there was the taking of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, and then there was prayer. And that's it. That's all there was 
generally speaking, to the worship of the early church. It was very simple. Preaching, sacraments, and prayer. Now, we look at this within the context of the rest of Scripture. We know that there were some, uh, sometimes there would be confessing of faith. They would sing songs, and eventually some hymns were written to, to sing as well. But that was it. That was the emphasis of their gathering and their perfecting. What they came together to do week after week, to hear preaching and teaching, to take the sacraments, to pray, to sing praises to God. It's a very simple worship. And in the simplicity of that worship was also a simplicity of message. Because again, who were the pastors of the early church? The apostles. Matthew, Luke, and John, Peter, and Thomas and James. They had 11 pastors. Now, who were the apostles' teacher? Who, who was their seminary professor? Who schooled those 11 pastors? It was Jesus, right? Jesus was their teacher. They had spent three years under his ministry, which, by the way, is how long it should take you to get your master's divinity at seminary. Unless you're dumb like me and you go five years. But the program's built for three years. They spent three years under Jesus' ministry. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. He was their professor. Everything they learned about Jesus came for Jesus came from Jesus. And so when it says in our passage that the early church would gather to hear the apostles preach, to hear them teach. What they heard was the apostles preaching and teaching that came straight from Jesus himself. Their sermons, their Bible studies, their Sunday school lessons would have all been based on Jesus' earthly teaching. Plus the, the time, or the time, plus what he taught them in his 40 days of, of resurrection appearances. All that was said and taught by the apostles would have come straight from Jesus' teaching. What he taught them over three years about who he was, about his work, and their Christian responsibility as his followers, what it meant to be his disciples. And all we have to do is we have to go and read through the Gospels and read through the epistles to get a taste of what worship was like for the early church. We can go read the book of Hebrews, which we believe is a sermon. We can go read through the book of Mark, which we believe is a, is a collection of Peter's sermons. All we have to do is go read through the Gospels, the Epistles, read through the New Testament to get an essence of what was being preached and what was being taught. And what we find is it was all very simple because it was all about Jesus. Their simplicity of worship was it was about Jesus, and the simplicity of worship is that it led them to Jesus. Every Lord's Day, they would gather maybe in a temple or in someone's home. The one of the apostles, let's say on this Sunday it was Peter, would stand up, open up the scroll, read the passage, and then he would exegete it. He would explain what this passage meant in its historical and cultural context. And then he would explain to him how this pointed to Jesus as person and work. How this passage in Isaiah points us to Jesus. How this passage in Ecclesiastes points us to Jesus. How this passage in the Song of Solomon points us to Jesus. 
What it reveals to us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then our reaction to it, our responsibility. He would have explained what this meant and their response to, for them to follow as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a very simple message. And a very simple worship. It's all about Jesus. Because it reflected the simplicity of the faith. Here's Jesus. He is Lord and Savior. And here's why you need Jesus. And here's what it means to have faith in Jesus. And now, here's what it means to now live in that faith of Jesus. It's very simple, isn't it? It's all about Jesus. It's not complex. It's not rocket science or brain surgery or for dummies like me. It's not math. It's all about Jesus. So how do we know that we as Christians and we as Bethel ARP, how do we know we're hitting the mark? It's very simple. This is all about Jesus. This, who we are, is all about Jesus. For me to live is Christ. For me to worship is about Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's that simple. And it's that refreshing, isn't it? We live in a day and time where you have more choices than you know what to do with. And I like it when at times these choices are taken away and I'm just given a very few. And understanding this simplicity shuts every door for us and just leaves one door open. And that door... It's Jesus Christ. And we walk through that door into the glory of who he is. Have faith in him. And now worshiping him. It's all about Jesus. So which means then a, a, a church, a, a, a people should have a focus on, on just particular things. That we're just focused on a particular doctrine or sin. That we don't, we don't come to church and we look around and we're worried about who's wearing what or, or what they're not wearing. Or that for us, we're, we're beholden to any tradition of man. It's all about Jesus. How do we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? It's all through Jesus. Because that's what we find the early church doing here, don't we? It's a, it, it's, this is a general kind of big picture view of the church. But we don't see here that they, that they were debating about what traditions they should hold in the church. Oh, no, 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 no. We've got to do it this way because we've been doing it this way for three months. They weren't writing out standards of man that everybody else was to hold to. No, for them, it was all about Jesus Sermons about Jesus, teachings about Jesus, the sacraments pointed to Jesus, they prayed in Jesus' name, they sang to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. And this is because the apostles were teaching them to practice what Jesus had taught them. We think of Jesus teaching them in Matthew eleven and twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
We have this. This is a wonderful sort of uh, picture into the into the triumph God. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That, in a sense, is their mission statements of worship and faith. All their worship and their faith within and through Christ for the glory of the Father through the guidance and direction of the Spirit is simplicity at its finest in worship and in faith. Dwayne Allman was one of the lead guitarists from the Allman Brothers Band. And he and Dickie, Dickie Betts, I believe, make up one of the greatest guitar duos of all time along with Derek Trucks and Warren Haynes, but it's another discussion for another time. But Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident back really kind of the heyday of Allman Brothers. But before he died, he gave an interview. And he was asked in the interview how the world could achieve peace. This was during the tumultuous time of the Vietnam War. So they came, this interviewer came to the, the lead slide guitarist of the Allman Brothers and said, Dwayne, how do you think we could achieve world peace? And Dwayne, being a good old Georgia boy and hippie, just smiled at him and said, eat a peach. For him, it was just that simple. He thought world peace could be achieved by gathering all the world leaders together, sit them under some shade trees, and give them a good peach to eat. Eat a peach for peace. Which, by the way, that's why so much of the Allman Brothers stuff has a peach on it. And their seminal album, released after Dwayne died, is titled Eat a Peach. Not sure if his idea would have worked. I don't think it would have hurt. But we all know it wouldn't have been a, it shouldn't be a Georgia peach, it should be a MacBee peach. Those would bring us closer to world peace. Now his way of thinking, closest way you can get to the bullseye of world peace is something as simple as eating a good peach. And we have something just as simple that God's given us. How do we know we're close to hitting the bullseye? When it's all about Jesus. Every song is about Jesus. Every prayer is to Jesus. Every sermon points us to Jesus. Every word is about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. That's the simplicity of faith and worship. That simplicity comes from a sincerity of faith. The early church had a sincere faith. They genuinely and thoroughly believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save them from their sins and to lead them in life, and they were faithful to following after him. It was a simple faith, a simple worship that came from sincere faith. Every day, their goal was to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and for them to love their neighbors as themselves, it was a sincere faith. And how do we know it was sincere? Not because they tell us, but because of the response to this faith. We see in verse 43, all came upon every soul. In 46 through 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We know the sincerity of their faith because we see the response to their faith. People were, were in awe of their faith. 
they looked at First Presbyterian, First ARP Church of Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it, First Church of Jerusalem. And they were in awe of how these people loved Jesus and how they followed after him. And so they found favor in the community because of his faith. And that's a big statement when you understand the political and religious context of what's taking place here. The Romans are in charge. Excuse me, the, the, the Romans are in charge. The Romans had just crucified their Lord and Savior, their Messiah. They had other gods in place. It wasn't like living in South Carolina. It wasn't entirely safe to be a Christian Yet the Christians found favor in a community because of the sincerity of their faith. They look at these people and go, they really believe this. And it's changed them. They're making the community better through their faith. And people responded to that. They looked at it and said, I want that. My life is miserable. Excuse me, sorry. My life is miserable and it's hard. I want what you have. The sincerity of faith was a true sincerity and it was known. We all know this. We all know sincerity when we see it. When somebody is sincere about something, they can't hide it. It's, 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 it's written all over them as a part of their aura, so to speak. And we've all had that experience of going to somebody and going, they are genuinely sincere about this. They really believe this. <coughs> they really believe this. They're, they're really following after this. You cannot hide sincerity. And on the other hand, you can't hide Hypocrisy either. When someone is a hypocrite, they can only hide it for so long. The truth will come out. And the same is true for the Christian faith. The sincerity of your faith will be known. Or the hypocrisy of your faith will be known. You can't hide it. The question is, Which one do you want to be known for? A sincere believer or a hypocritical believer? In quotation marks, believer in quotation marks. For people say about you, hey, they really love Jesus. Not perfect. But man, they really love Jesus. And you want to be said about them, what a jerk. They have the audacity to go to church and talk up a good game, but I know who they are. Do you want me to know as one who sincerely loves and follows Jesus? Or one who just fakes it for their own good? We've shared before that studies show that somewhere between 80 to 90% of people who visit a church and end up staying uh, do, the, do so because a friend or family member invited them. A friend or Family member came to him and said, hey, if you're looking for a church, why don't you come check us out? Why don't you come over here and, and see what, what, what we're about? But that 80-90% number, I would argue, is, is a number of sincerity. When a person is invited by a sincere believer, they're inclined to go to that church because of the sincerity of faith. They're like, this, or they're like this, the people here in this passage. 
yeah, I, I want to go to your church because you seem to be very sincere about it. I'm, I'm, I want to check this out. People don't go to church because you're a hypocrite. That's a reason to not go to church. The irony is we're all hypocrites, but rarely does somebody invite a, 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 an invitation to go to church and stay at church because they're invited by a hypocrite. Which one do you want to be known for? Adding to the numbers of the church? Taking away from the church? Sincerity or hypocrisy? Now, sincerity, we're not talking about perfection. And sincerity isn't looking down your nose at others because of whatever reason. Sincerity is just that simple faith of knowing God first loved you, so you love Him. And you strive to be in His Word. You strive to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a faith that knows... You're like Paul in the book of Romans. You're going to struggle with sin. And Paul says, I want to do good. But I want to do good. Evil is right there. And we understand that of ourselves. Sincerity isn't about perfection. We know we're going to sin, but there's a willingness to repent of it. And there's a commitment to dying more and more to sin so you may live more and more unto the righteousness of the Christ who so loved you. It's that sincerity of faith where it's now, that person is now united to Christ through faith and the Spirit is changing them from the inside out. And that's one of the wonderful things I think that's true about the gospel is when we're told that you know, God begins a good work in us and he will bring it to completion, you can't hide the work of the triune God. I think some of the greatest evangelism we have to others is a changed life. Because you can't hide the work of the triune God. As a hypocrite, you can fake it, but only for so long, and the truth will come out. When it's sincere, you can't hide it. It's a sincerity born from that faith of receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's been offered in the gospel. It's a sincerity that thrives and grows because it's a faith that knows the sincerity of Christ's love for them. Where's the sincere faith comes from? Because they look at the Bible and they go, God so loved me. That he gave his only begotten son who was born in the fullness of time to be born under the law to live all of his life in obedience for me so that he could suffer and die on the cross. That is a sincere love. And a sincere faith is born from knowing that Jesus loves us that much. A sincere faith that says, for me to live is Christ because Christ lived and died for me. That's the simplicity of faith and sincerity of faith. And both of those will breed a serious faith in worship. The early church here was very serious about their faith and the expression of their faith. We see that in their devotion. When it wasn't easy for them to go to church, they still were devoted to the gathering and perfecting of the saints. Even when it wasn't easy, they would, they would seek to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and therefore they would worship Him from this love. We see this in their serious devotion to caring for one, for one another and for others. They were willing to sell their, their flat screen TVs, willing to sell off shoes or clothes or doing whatever so they could help their neighbors out. This sincere, simplicity and sincerity of faith and worship led to a seriousness and devotion to living for the glory of God and finding their joy in Him. 
And the world around them noticed that serious devotion and they responded to it. And the thing is, I think it's safe to say, we live in a very unserious age in our world and we live, I'm sad, I think it's sad, I think this is true and I think it's sad to say, we live in a very unserious age in the church. We look around the world and we say, we can't take the world seriously. Without being political or, or choosing sides, just look around and go, how are we supposed to take this seriously? Then we look to God's church and we see how members of the church have begun to treat it like more of a hobby, more of an honor tradition than it is about the expression of a sincere faith and a simple worship of Christ. It's no longer a priority. It can be one of the first things written off so we can fit other things in. We'd rather do something else than on a Sunday. We'll, we'll write church off. We live in, in a serious age in the church. And we wonder why the church is dying. We wonder why the world is in the state it's in. Why should the world take us seriously if we don't take it seriously? And we wonder why our covenant children abandon the church. We haven't taught them to take it serious. Here's the issue for us. When we turn to God's word, we find how seriously devoted God is to loving us. And all we need to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ for that proof. How devoted and serious is God about loving you? He gave his only begotten son. That God so loved us that the Father sent the Son and the Son obeyed and the Spirit testifies to this love. That's a serious love. That's a love that's meant to capture the mind and the heart, a love that will forever change a person. And we can only be serious about our faith because of that love. I don't mean serious in a dour, you know, un, un, unwilling to enjoy life sort of way, but a seriousness in that there is no greater love to us than God's love and we are devoted to the love of God because of how devoted that love is to me. And that seriousness changes our lives. I believe I shared this last week, I've heard it recently, that Satan, one of his greatest successes is making us believe that there is this sharp distinction between happiness and holiness. Either you can be happy or you can be holy, but you can't be both. And really we can make that same distinction between happiness and a, and a serious faith. Either you can be happy or you can be a serious Christian, but you can't be both. But here's the problem with that. When I read this passage of the early church, happiness oozes out of it for me. I read this passage, and I hope you do too, and, and, and you think Man, these people seem to be happy and content. They seem to have it together. There's no distinction between happiness and serious faith. The serious faith is the happiest of faith because this joy is found in Christ alone through faith alone. And so we look at this and we go, I wish I could be a part of that. But here's the good news. You can that's the bullseye. That's the bullseye. The gathering and perfecting the saints, 
through a simple worship that reflects a simple faith, a sincere faith, and a faith that is serious about its faith, and a faith that is serious about its worship. That's all it is. To turn to Christ and seek that faith that is simple, sincere, and serious. And we do that, we're hitting the bullseye. And when more and more of us do that, then our church is hitting the bullseye. And there's no better better bullseye than to love Jesus and to worship him and to have all of your life about him. Pray with me.